John chapter 1, page 1050, if you're using a pew Bible, as we continue to study through the gospel of John here, Sunday morning. Today we come to verses 29 to 34, and let me read that, and then uh, we'll dig into it a little bit. John chapter 1, verses 29 to 34. It says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. Well, this is uh, kind of an exciting verse, these verses I just read within the Gospel of John, because this is the first time in John's Gospel that we actually see Jesus. This is the first time Jesus comes into the picture. We've been learning about Jesus. You know, we uh, we spent three weeks in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, which is often called the prologue of the gospel of john and in those verses we we learn sort of who jesus was kind of his theological backstory if you will of this character um in verses one to five of john chapter one for instance uh we we heard about uh, how jesus is the word and that in the beginning before time was the word and the word was with god and the word was god and then the next sunday we looked at verses six to thirteen and we saw jesus is the light He shines in the darkness. And then uh, we looked at verses 14 to 18, and we saw that the Word became flesh. This incredible mystery that somehow God became flesh. He became a human being, and He dwelt among us so that we could really know God in a way that would make sense to us, human being to human being. Then last Sunday, Pastor Godwin uh, preached on verses 19 to 28. And there we, we move from the prologue to the actual story of Jesus But we still didn't meet Jesus. Last Sunday was John the Baptist, right? And John the Baptist's big thing was, I'm not Jesus. I'm not the one you're looking for. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. I'm just the guy who's here to tell you that the Christ is coming. I'm not the band that you paid money to see. I'm the the warm-up act that's getting you ready for, for the one you came, who you're looking for, who's the Messiah. So there's this build up you know this drumbeat building up to jesus and finally the symbols crash in verse 29 as jesus enters the narrative of john itself verse 29 the next day john saw jesus coming toward him and so this is an important kind of unveiling within john's gospel you know the first time you meet the main character it's kind of an important moment if you're writing a, a novel and you want to introduce the protagonist 
in the story, you need to choose your words well and, and really pick your words carefully because you don't want the main character to just kind of show up in the story. You want him to be sort of introduced in a way so that by his introduction and, and with introduction with the words that are used, you, you get a sense of who he is and what he's all about. If you're filming a movie and the main hero or the main heroine comes into the picture, you, you want to film that scene in a way that communicates a little bit about the main character when they first see him. I was thinking about you know, one of my all-time favorite movies, uh, Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. And uh, that opening scene where you first meet Indiana Jones, you know, you're somewhere in the steamy jungles of Central America, and, and you see this kind of rugged figure pushing through the jungle, and someone says, you know, Dr. Jones, and he does one of these, like, you know, turn around kind of thing, and a, a classic Steven Spielberg, you know, close-up of his face, and there you see Harrison Ford with the, like, five-day stubble, and, uh, and, and he's, he's got those, you know, chiseled features and that brooding look, and that weathered leather hat. And right away, you, you get a sense of who he is. You know, this is not some pointy-headed academic archaeologist professor. This is an adventurer. This is uh, one of those guys who's out there in those places that, you know, that he's risking his life to be. And, and already you know, Indiana Jones' mission is adventure and treasure hunting. And so here we are with Jesus, and he's finally introduced and in these, this first glimpse of him, we get a sense of his mission, of his purpose. Uh, not by a physical description of Jesus, but in a sense by a theological description of who Jesus is and what his mission was about. So John, the gospel writer, uses the words of John the Baptist, two different Johns, to describe for us who Jesus is, you know, and... Uh, and there's two things really that we want to see about Jesus here as we look at him in these opening verses. I think there's at least two things that John wants to tell us about Jesus' identity, about his mission, as we get this first glimpse of Jesus himself. And the first one is this. Here's the first thing. Number one, John wants us to understand that Jesus is the sin-bearing lamb. He's the sin-bearing lamb. Let me show you what I mean by that. Look at verse 29 again. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, I, I can almost see that as a movie in my head. Like, there's John, and he's this kind of crazy dude who wears camel hair, and, you know, I'm at, I, for reason, I always think of John the Baptist with dreadlocks. You know, he's out in the wilderness. He's not big on showering and stuff, and he's just out there baptizing people, and this kind of caveman-looking guy. And, and yet everybody is there. The crowds are there on the banks of the river, and the, the Pharisees have come from Jerusalem to figure out who he is and why everyone's going to see him, and he's baptizing people, and all the attention is on this crazy man who's preaching and baptizing, and all of a sudden he, he points, look! You know, everybody look, and you can just imagine this whole crowd... You know, who is it? Look. He directs us to Jesus. And in the same way, his voice, even today, thousands of years later, his voice continues to echo off the page and calls us to look. You know, his, his arm sort of extends out of the Scriptures and his hand continues to point us toward Christ. Look. 
And as I said, the first thing he wants us to see is that Jesus is the sin-bearing lamb. Look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is just, there's just certain sentences in the Bible that are so choice, that, that are so wonderful. That's one of those choice sentences. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, you want to savor that sentence. You, you don't want to take that sentence in the way my dog eats its pill pockets, you know. There's no savoring when my dog eats anything. It just, you know, and gulps it down. You're like, oh, I, I spent money on that food and you just wolfed it down. This is like that. You know, th- this verse is like a, a chocolate, a, a, you know, a fine chocolate. You don't wolf it down. You put it, you take a little bite, think about it. You let it melt in your mouth. You talk about it with the other person who's eating one of the chocolates. Ooh, do you taste that? I, I taste raspberry there. Mm, you know, and you just let, let that chocolate melt to savor the chocolate this is one of those kinds of sentences we need to savor it so let's take it a few bites at a time first just start there look the lamb just take that little bite the lamb john introduces jesus and the first thing he's called and as he enters the scene is the lamb what's up with the lamb why the lamb what does that mean well in the context of a kind of old testament worldview if if you were to think about what a lamb means biblically i suppose there's a lot of characteristics of lamb but one of the the primary features of lambs in the bible is that they are sacrificial animals that they are killed in order to uh, bear a punishment for someone else that that they're substitute sacrifices you know go way back in israel's history to when uh, israel was first coming to be as a nation and God was rescuing them out of Egypt. And the night before they busted out of Egypt, that night they had the Passover feast. And what happened at the Passover? Well, the Israelites slaughtered a Passover lamb. And they took some of the blood of that sacrificial lamb and they put it over the, the doorposts of their house. And then that night when God's judgment came on the whole land of Egypt and every firstborn male was killed in Egypt as a, a sign of God's judgment, those who were protected by the blood of the firstborn lamb uh, escaped God's judgment. They were inside their houses on that Passover. So in a sense, the sacrifice of the firstborn lamb took the place of the, the judgment of God killing the firstborn of those who are in Egypt. So it's a sacrificial animal. And then if you move from Israel's beginnings to later on in Israel's history when they were in the wilderness and even when they got to the promised land, they still were sacrificing lambs. You, know, you think about the, the role of sacrificial animals in Israel's worship. God himself dwelt among the Israelites. The holy God of the universe dwelt among an unclean, unholy, sinful people. And so in order to, to, to sort of somehow make that incompatibility work, God introduced the sacrificial system. And so the Israelites as they continued to live among God and continued to disobey his laws and continued not to love him and not to love their neighbors, uh, they would amend for their sins by bringing sacrificial animals. And one of those was a lamb. And so here's the Israelite standing before the temple, standing before the priests, placing his hand on the sacrificial lamb, confessing his sins over the lamb. And then the lamb being slaughtered. You know, what a picture of the consequence of sin before a holy God, which is judgment and death, and yet the mercy of God by allowing a sacrifice to take the place of the sinner. 
So lambs were a substitute sacrifice. Or even think of Isaiah 53 where the Messiah is prophesied and, and it says of him, he was led like a, you know the phrase, a lamb to the slaughter. So how interesting as John is first introducing Jesus and the first thing he wants to tell us is that he's a lamb. And so already f- from the get-go, we are being oriented toward the cross. We're already being pointed toward Jesus' mission. If Indiana Jones' mission is to go to remote, forgotten temples and uncover treasure. You know, what's the mission of Jesus? Why is he here? And already John is pointing us toward the cross. And so throughout the gospel, we see uh, Jesus with an awareness of his coming hour. You see Jesus with an awareness of his sacrifice that is impending. He's the lamb. But notice this next part. Let's take the next bit and continue savoring this chocolate. Take another bite. He's the Lamb of God. In other words, the, the idea there is the Lamb that comes from God. It's God's Lamb. God provides this Lamb. He, he's given by God. He's the Lamb of God. Which is interesting, right? Because in the Old Testament, you had sacrificial lambs. But who provides the Lamb in the Old Testament? The sinner. <laughs> the Israelite. They have to cough up their own Passover lamb on Passover. Or or if you have broken God's laws and you need absolution, you've got to bring your own animal on the feast days and all the sacrificial events, and you have to provide it. But here, God is providing the lamb. God is bringing the sacrifice. God is providing something that we need that really we can't provide for ourselves. Because when you think about it, a barnyard animal can't really make you square with God. Right? I mean, it's a symbol, it's a ceremony, but in terms of, like, reality, in terms of metaphysical reality, so to speak, how can, how can a lamb take away my sins? It's an animal. It's a dumb animal. It's not a moral being. You know, there's a difference between human beings and animals. I mean, sometimes we don't act like it, but there is a difference in the way God created us. God created animals after their kind and their wonderful things, but he created human beings in his image. There is is a hard line in terms of God's vision of creation between human beings and animals. And we're moral beings. We have a moral conscience. Animals aren't moral beings. You know, when a lion eats a giraffe, it didn't sin, you know. It's just an animal. But God made us moral beings in his image. And so for somebody to be a substitute sacrifice for my sin, it needs to be another moral agent of some sort. So ultimately, all these animals they brought in the Old Testament, as the book of Hebrews tells us, can't take away sin. They're just kind of a a picture, a ceremony, something pointing forward. But Jesus comes and he is the true lamb of God. God has provided the sacrifice that I couldn't provide for myself with barnyard animals. Look, the Lamb of God that God has sent. Look at the next bite. Who takes away the sin. Ah, those beautiful words. Taking away sin. Think about that. It's implicit in the idea of a lamb, but now it's made explicit. He's here to take away sin. God has come to remove sin from us. Sin, of course, is the big problem. 
Uh, by sin, we're meaning our, our disobedience to God, the, the fact that we don't love Him the way we should, that we don't worship Him, that we don't love one another, that rather than worshiping the Creator, we make gods out of the creation, ideas, people, things. We, we uh, disobey God. We do it our way. We put ourselves at the center of the universe instead of recognizing God as the center of the universe. All those different ways of talking about what sin is. And, you know, it's sin that's at the root of the human dilemma. You look at anything in the world that you look at and you say, oh, that's terrible. You know, whether it's uh, poverty or injustice or the things people do. And all of those things can ultimately be traced back to our rebellion against God and our rejection of Him. It's either, they're either sins or they're uh, results of sins and consequences of us living in a broken and sinful world. And so at the roots of the human dilemma is a need for sin to be taken away. That this is our core problem. And among all the other problems and struggles and issues that we have. And so here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's His, his task. We, we need our sins taken away. And we know this. I, uh, little kids know this. You know, we had these little kids up here singing before the service. And some of those kids, uh, I, I go to uh, this program on, we have here on Wednesday nights called Olympians. It's kind of an Olympic theme, but it's just a kid's discipleship program where we teach them about the Bible. And, um, I, and so I was there this a uh, couple weeks ago, and, you know, there's a teacher who teaches the class, and then we parents break up with kids, and we ask them some questions, do a little Bible study with them. And it was all about friendship, what makes a good friend. And, you know, they were giving all the Sunday school answers. A friend shares. A friend is nice, you know. So, so I was like, ah, this is boring. Let's, 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 uh, let's make this a little more juicy. So, so I, uh, I asked the kids, I go, have you ever not been a good friend? And they all were like, ooh. Like, all of them were like, oh, 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 I haven't been a good friend. And, and they all started telling about these the terrible things they've done to each other like Lord of the Flies confessional group, you know? <laughs> you know, oh yeah, my friends were making fun of my friend and I joined them and I was making fun of my friend too. Oh yeah, my friend was at lunch and he was asking me if, if I could have some cookies. I said I didn't have any, but I really did, you know? And it was like, and it was really weird. Even little kids, I've often said, I've never had to teach my kids how to lie. Never had to do it. I never had to teach my kids how to hit. I never had to teach them how to take things out of each other's hands. I never had to teach them how to call each other hurtful names. They know how to do it. Because it's sin. We need that taken away. We as adults need our sin taken away. In those quiet moments in our lives when we we can turn off the, the TV and the radio and just have our space and our brains to think and reflect in our lives... There's a lot for which we're ashamed and embarrassed and we wish we could change. You know, estranged relationships that maybe weren't 100% our fault, but they were some part our fault and we regret that. And we think of estranged relationships with children. We think of um, promiscuity and immorality and the way we've used other people for our own pleasures without real love and without godliness. We think about addictions. We think about... Just living our lives for ourselves and our own betterment and our own happiness without any reference to God or, or to others. And, and our lives are filled with sin. We have prison records. We have bad records. 
I remember when I was in seminary, uh, we used to play basketball on Fridays, kind of blow off steam. All these seminarians get together and shoot hoops. And uh, between one of the, the games, I had a poignant conversation. For some reason, I, I, I've always remembered this, but I was, it was me. I was in my 20s at the time. There's another young seminarian probably in his 20s. And then uh, there was an older guy who was kind of middle-aged, sort of like second, second career. You know, he'd been in some industry and then felt called to ministry and then was now in seminary as like a 40, 50-year-old guy kind of switching careers. And, uh, and, and the three of us were talking, and, and he kind of out of the blue said, you know, I, I really envy you younger guys. And I wasn't sure, you know, where it was going. I thought maybe he was going to be like, you know, because you guys can run up and down the court and you're not sucking wind. And, you know, but he wasn't talking about youth in terms of athleticism or basketball. He, he said, you know, you guys are young and you're starting out in your lives going to seminary. You, you know, you're doing it the right way. You know, I... Yeah, I'm going to seminary now and I'm following the Lord, but I have all these years when I was partying and doing the wrong things. And I just, I so regret that. I wish I could take that back. I wish I could change that. You know, and that was a striking conversation. And part of it was, wouldn't you think that somebody who was in seminary would feel pretty good about themselves? You'd think they'd be like, well, you know, I'm in seminary. But, you know, sin doesn't work like that. It's not like calories, where if you, you know, eat too much on Thanksgiving, but you hit the gym the next two days, it balances. You know, you, you, you can't, you don't fix the regret in your life and the guilt of sin by, you know, by becoming an Eagle Scout to kind of make up for it. It's just not how sin works. It's just always there. It, it, it can't be made up for it. It needs to somehow be taken away. You know, you know if, I, if I commit crimes... And then at a certain point, I stop committing crimes and live a decent life. I'm still answerable for those crimes. And the law would hold me accountable for those crimes. Because sin has to be taken away. You you don't balance it out. It's not like yin and yang. And it's not like, well, if my, my good outweigh my bad. That's not the way sin and guilt work. And we know that instinctively. I need someone to, to take it away. You know, I... That's why, you know, some of you may have grown up in a Roman Catholic faith. You know, that's why the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory is such a horrible lie. You know, you don't die and then work off your sins. You can't do it that way. That undercuts the gospel. But that's not just a Roman Catholic prerogative. Plenty of Protestants have their own little mental versions of purgatory. You know, we don't believe it happens in the afterlife, but even now we, we're like, yeah, Jesus, I, I'm, I'm a Christian. I believe Jesus died for me, but, but I still got to make it up. I still got to do better. I still got to, you know, it's just our own little kind of mental version of purgatory here, but we don't call it that, but we're trying to make up for something. And, and in either case, Roman Catholic or the Protestant version, we haven't come to grips with this beautiful phrase that the Lamb of God has taken away sin. That if you're in Jesus, your sin is away. You know, where's away? I don't know. I don't really want to know. (laughs) I just know away is good. Here is bad, away is good. My sins are away. They've taken them up. My sin isn't just, my guilt before God is not just in remission. It is cured. You know, it's not just... No payments this year, but then next year the interest rates kick in. It's paid in full. I have nothing left to pay. My sin is taken away. What amazing words. 
And so as a Christian, I, I, you know, like that guy in seminary, I can live in regret in my life. But it's like you have nothing to regret because everything you would regret has been paid. It's in Christ. It's taken away. Look, the Lamb of God, the Lamb provided by God who actually takes away sin. Oh, and let's not forget the last bite of the world. Not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. The world in all of its brokenness. Are you from the world? Do you, do you know how the world works? Are you worldly wise? Have you lived on, on the streets? Have you lived in the, swam in the shark tank of business? Have you been in the, the fraternity? Do you know what it's like at a party? Do you know the world and all the stuff of the world? Have you been there too? Jesus died for the sins of the world, worldly stuff. He came to take that away. That was his mission. Yeah, look. Look at him, the Lamb of God. He's come to do the one thing that no one else can do for you that we can't even do for ourselves because he is the sin-bearing Lamb. He is the God-provided sacrifice who can cleanse and forgive and cancel and acquit and set free. But he's not only the sin-bearing lamb. There's one other thing I see in these verses, at least, that John wants to tell us about Jesus in this initial introduction to him. He's not only the sin-bearing lamb, but number two, he's also the spirit-anointed Lord. He's the sin-bearing lamb, and he's the spirit-anointed Lord. He's not only the sacrifice, but he's also the sovereign. He's not only the one who takes away our sins humbly, but he's the king who rules. And and that's really, I think, what verses 30 to 34 are about. So let's look at Jesus now as the spirit-anointed Lord, not just the sin-bearing lamb. Verse 30, uh, John the Baptist goes on. He says, this is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. So John says, I didn't know who he was. I mean, John knew who Jesus was. It was his cousin. But he didn't know fully that this was Jesus' mission. But then something happened so that John came to know that Jesus was the Messiah. Look at verse 32. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And when did that happen? Remember the story from the other Gospels? That was at Jesus' baptism, if you know the other Gospels. Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. And when he came up out of the water, the Holy Spirit came down on him. And John the Baptist was given eyes to see this amazing event. And John says in verse 33, I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me the man whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. Now, now what was going on in that moment when Jesus had the Holy Spirit come down on him? Well, I, I think one of the central things that was going on is that he was being anointed, uh, coronated in a sense, marked as the King. He was the Messiah. He, he was being anointed the King of Israel. You know, in the Old Testament, when someone was the new king, how would they mark the king? Do you guys, you guys know the story? A prophet would come. Think about King David. When King David became the king, if you know the story, the prophet Samuel came. And what did he do? 
Did he give him a car? Did he put a stamp on his hand? No, he, he, had, a, he had an oil flask. And he poured the oil on his head. So there's David, and suddenly he's getting olive oil dumped all over his head. You know, wh- why did you, Samuel do that? Well, it was a symbol of God has chosen you, and he's pouring out his empowerment through the Holy Spirit on you. And then, and then usually the Holy Spirit would come upon the king, and that oil was a symbol that God had chosen, picked the king, and the king now had God's power to do the impossible task of being the king. And so that's what that symbolized. And so in a sense now, Jesus is the king. He's being anointed by the Holy Spirit, not with oil as a symbol of the Spirit, but with the actual Holy Spirit. And there's John the Baptist seeing the king being anointed. And so he says, this is the Son of God in verse 34. Now that's important too because the phrase Son of God, you know, we hear the phrase Son of God and we think like of Jesus' divinity. But actually, this is kind of interesting, that phrase, Son of God, in some ways points more toward his humanity because the phrase Son of God was a phrase they would have used in those days to point to the Messiah who was descended of David. So when they said Son of God, they meant Messiah, the anointed one. So John is saying, I know he's the Messiah. I know he's the Son of God. I know he's the awaited king because I saw him be anointed. I I saw the ceremony where... The oil was poured on him, except it wasn't just oil. It was the thing to which oil itself points, which is the Holy Spirit itself. He is the anointed king. And so this is all over the Old Testament, this hope that God would send a king who would be anointed. Um, But here's the thing I, I think it's interesting I want to point out, is that not only is Jesus anointed with the Spirit, but he also gives the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 33. The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus not only takes away something, he also has come to give something. He's not only removing something we don't want, he's giving something we would want and really do need. He's not only taking away our sin, but he's baptizing with, he's, he's imparting, he's transferring, he's giving the Holy Spirit to us. And so like a, like a lamb, you know, a lamb takes away something from us. A lamb is a sacrifice, but a king gives something to us. A king is, you know, imparts gifts and favors. People go to the king because they want something from the king. So he's the lamb who takes away the sin, but he's also the spirit-anointed king who gives the Holy Spirit. And so one of the marks of being a Christian is not only that our sins are forgiven, but we have the Holy Spirit. And this is a theme we're going to learn a lot about in John. I I know you think about, I think about the Gospels like John, and and I think they're all about Jesus, but we're actually going to learn a lot about the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John, which I think is really cool. It's probably good for us because we often, we kind of go like Father, Son, and then we stop there. And we're still nervous about the Holy Spirit. Well, I don't know. I don't understand that. Well, we're going to learn about the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Gospel of John is about the whole Trinity. That's one of the beautiful things in the Gospel of John is that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Even here, you know, look at, look at verse 33. The one who sent me, that's the Father, to baptize, said the man, on who, that's Jesus, on whom you see the Spirit come down. There's the Holy Spirit. The whole trinity is in verse 33. So we're going to see Jesus in relationship to the Father and the Spirit throughout the Gospel of John. 
So anyway, back to the main point. He's come to give us the Spirit, not just take away sin. It is part of common Christian experience that we receive the Holy Spirit. You know, you can't be a Christian if you don't have the Holy Spirit. It's part of what Jesus came to do in part. And and so we're going to see this in John's Gospel. Like, for instance, John chapter 3, verse 3. Take a look there. I'm going to restrain myself from just starting a whole new sermon here, but can't wait to preach John chapter 3. Look at John 3, 3. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. If you want to have eternal life, heaven, be in the kingdom of God, you have to be born again according to Jesus. What does that mean? Verse 4, the guy Jesus is talking to asked back to Jesus, how can a man be born again when he's old? Nicodemus asked, surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. I mean, you can't be speaking literally here, Jesus. I, I, I got that much. That'd probably kill my mom. You know, I, I can't do that. Right, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and spirit. So we'll talk about what that means eventually. But, but the spirit, there it is. So, so what he's talking about born again is, is God changing your heart so that you go from disbelief and selfishness and loving sin to loving Jesus and to loving God. You know, that, that's the change. You know, AA can help you get sober. It really can. You know, there's some good techniques there to get sober. And sober is good. You know, Weight Watchers can help you lose a few pounds. It, it really works if, if you follow the system. And that's good. Losing pounds is good. Uh, there are apps that I could download on my iPad that could help me get my life under control, my schedule. I, it, it could help me become a more organized, productive, efficient person. That's good. But, but what is it that can change my heart so that I love Jesus? I can't do that. I need someone else to do that. Just like I need someone else to take away my sin, I need someone else to make me born again so that I believe the gospel and, and love Christ. I love the God who's revealed himself in Scripture. That's something only God can do. Only God, God has given the Lamb and God gives the Holy Spirit. He's the one who takes my sin and he's the one who gives me the, the new birth. So I need God's power to do those things. Or one other thing, look at John chapter 7. John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. It's not just when you become a Christian that the Holy Spirit has given you new birth, but it's also a continuing Christian experience. Verse 37, On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. So if you believe in Jesus, streams of water will flow from within you. What does that mean? Well, fortunately, here's one of those great times we get a direct explanation. Verse 39, by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were later to receive. So not only does the Holy Spirit bring us to faith in Jesus, but the Holy Spirit just continues to, to bring life and joy out of us like a river from within us. What does that mean? 
well, I don't know fully. I can't wait to study John chapter 7. I can't wait to dig into that. We'll have to, we'll have to just kind of just give you a teaser there, give myself a teaser. But whatever that means, even if you've never studied those verses, if you are a Christian, you already know somewhat what it means because you have experienced it. You already know what it's like to have this new thing within you, this new desire, this new direction, this new heart. You, you used to love this, and now you love that. I, I never forget. I always remember my, uh, one of the guys who, who became a Christian. Um, it's one of our missionaries now, uh, Sean Keith. You know, you know Sean. Some of you know him. And Sean's one of our missionaries, just spreading the gospel all over the world through um, multimedia. It's, it's a really amazing ministry. But before he, before he was a, a missionary, he was a salesman for Sam Adams. And uh, he'd have to go to all these, you know, events where he was peddling beer and, you know, just all the craziness that goes on at those events and, uh, and all these parties. And, and he said, you know, before I was, uh, was a Christian, I, I would just do all those things that never bothered me. And he says, now, he says, all my desires are changed. He goes, he, he would have to be like, oh, I got to go. I got to go to work. I got to this party. How, how fast can I get out of there? You know, before he was Christian, it was like, I have the best job in the world. I bring free beer, you know, to parties with women. Wow. And, and then he was like, became a Christian. His desires were all changed. Oh, I don't want that. And eventually the Lord let him out of that. And, and in his case, he was called to become a missionary. He doesn't always have to be a missionary, but God changes your heart. And there's streams of living water. Instead of streams of beer going in, <laughs> streams of living water coming out. And he, he had different desires. And as a Christian, you experience this joy, sometimes despite ourselves as Christians. Sometimes when, when we would be going the other way, we can't resist the fact that God is doing a work within us. What an amazing experience. So to be a Christian, part of what it's like is a sense of great relief that your sins are taken away, not because you've made yourself a better person, but because God has taken them away. And, and an experience of of new desires and knowledge of God within you that you didn't have before. You know, you know God. It's the weirdest thing. You know, if someone were to ask me, Jeremy, why are you a Christian? You know, why do you believe in God? Why do you believe Jesus really is the Son of God? You know, I, I, could, I could kind of answer that one of two ways. One way is to go down all the, the kind of apologetic arguments for why I think it's true. You know, I, we could get into the philosophical realm and go back to some of the old arguments about the need, you know, there has to be an unmoved mover, there has to be a first cause. Um, you, you know, you could do philosophical arguments like that. You could make the moral arguments like C.S. Lewis does, that there is a law within our hearts, and if there's a law, there's a lawgiver. We all have a moral conscience. Really good arguments. You, you could do archaeological arguments. You know, you could show again and again how the Bible and its stories have been verified archaeologically, just the incredible archaeological evidence for Scripture. And you could do all those kinds of arguments, but I wouldn't be totally honest with you if I said that's why I believe. The reason I believe is because I was born again. <laughs> that there was a pastor preaching about Jesus, and it was like, I've used this illustration before, the pilot light just suddenly popped on in the furnace. You know, and it's not because my family was pressuring me. It's not because I was in a cult. It's not because I was in a low point in my life and, and I was really weak and vulnerable and someone gave me something and I kind of got sucked in. It was just 
God spoke or did something through his word, and I suddenly believed. And, and I, I can tell you that I know God. I don't just know about him. I don't just believe in him. I know him. It sounds so weird. But the Holy Spirit's kind of weird in a good way. I can't explain it. So this is what it means in part to be a Christian, we're going to find. is It's an experience of God in your life that's incredible as he does that work. So how do you get that? How do you get the Holy Spirit? I, I would be surprised, I would be pleasantly surprised, but still surprised if every single person here really knew Jesus the way John talks about. I would be surprised. That's usually not the case. I don't even know if all my children know Jesus yet. I can't make that happen. I can tell them about Jesus, but I have to pray because God is the one who takes away sin. God is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I wish I could baptize my children in the Holy Spirit. I wish I could baptize some of my friends in the Holy Spirit. Just grab them. You know, I wish I got like three baptism tokens and I could choose to baptize certain people in the Holy Spirit so they would come to know the same Jesus I've come to know. But I don't even have one baptized token. He's the one who does the baptizing. He's the one who makes it happen. And he's the one who can make it happen for, for you and for me. He's the one. God provides the lamb and God provides the power. So what do you do? What, what do you do if, if you think, boy, I would really love to know Christ. How do I know him? What do I have to do? do is, is there a prayer I need to pray? Is there a class I need to take here in the church? Is there a workbook I need to go through? Is there a sacrament the church does onto me that makes me... Uh, you know, experience this? Do, do we need to sing a, a song at the end and have people come down to the front here at an altar call? Will that make them have the Holy Spirit and be baptized? Well, what do you do? What, what does a person have to do to get this? Look. Just look. <laughs> look at Jesus. You know, that's it. That's it. You know, look with the eyes of faith. Look believing and trusting. But there's nothing we can bring that's going to offset our sins. And and there's nothing we can bring to change ourselves. He has it all. All we can do is come in faith alone. Faith alone saves. We can just look. As Jesus is going to say later in John chapter 3, verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. Like those Israelites who are just laying on the ground snake bit, and all they could do is kind of look to the serpent that Moses had erected. So Jesus was lifted up, and all we can do is look with the eyes of faith. So look. Look to Jesus and live. Let's pray. Let's look to Jesus. Lord Jesus, we look to you. We believe in you. Lord, as Peter said, we believe. Help our unbelief. Lord, we want to see you. And so I pray, God, that you would show us the glory of the fact that you are both the one who can take our sins away and also the one who can give us an experience of you. Lord, what an amazing gift this is. And I do pray for all of us here that we would look to you, that you would give us eyes to see. God, I pray that you would, you would create in us a holy discomfort and a holy um, dissatisfaction 
with our nice, orderly lives, that you would help us to see our sin, that you would help us to see that we have sin to be taken away, that you would help us to see the glory of Jesus who takes away sin. Lord, would you impart power on this church, power to know you, power to to repent and believe, power to look. Sometimes, Lord, we, we can't even lift our heads to look. Even that we need power for. So, Lord, would you send your Holy Spirit on this church? And I pray, Lord, for Christians who were here, that they would have a fresh uh, gushing up of living water from within them. Lord, sometimes it seems like that, that water from within is a little trickle, and sometimes it's a tidal wave. And, Lord, we pray for a tidal wave of your Spirit to just work in this church. Lord, we need you, and we thank you that all we have to do is look, that you've done everything else. Lord Jesus, we love you and we look to you. We pray this in your name. Amen.